for whatever reason, when you put a story out in the world, Kelly, you really don't know if it will land, what will gain traction with people, what will touch them or move them or lodge somewhere in their memories or in their hearts. And this story has. Welcome to Buy Sci-Fi Bite-Sized Finance. I'm Kelly Brothers. I'll be your host serving up some of the most succulent stories from our region about people, places, and things that impact our community and your financial well-being. I'm sure there will even be a few tasty surprises here and there when the recipe is right. Our goal is to have you learn, think, even laugh a little bit, all calorie-free. I know you'll enjoy what we're delivering right to your kitchen table or dining room or, sir, will you be eating in your car? Wherever you choose to listen. Welcome back to another edition of Buy Sci-Fi Bite-Sized Finance. Today, we're not going to stick on finance, but we're going to move to a, a skill and a person who exemplify a talent that we don't make enough about and a talent that can be learned and can be learned and used to one's great advantage in so many different walks of life. I'm talking about storytelling, and I am proud to be joined by the man that many would consider to be perhaps the best storyteller we've ever seen, especially if you enjoy sports, because there is no one who tells a story like the great Tom Rinaldi. And Tom, can't thank you enough for joining us today, my friend. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. Tell anyone who's listening our origin story of how we know <laughs> one another. Tom came to KCRA, and we immediately struck up a friendship. This was back in 94, 93. When was that, Tom? No, later than that. You're close. Was it 96? 97, no, my God, 97. 97, 98, yep. Tom came in, and he his prior stop had been WNDU in South Bend, Indiana. And I had worked there prior as well. And so we immediately struck up a friendship. But we all knew Tom was going someplace great. His desire to tell stories. And I still remember him at the assignment desk saying, I don't want to go to Blue Canyon to talk about snow coming down. That's not news. But you know what? There's this, I can't remember, Tom, it was a theater, I think, in Newcastle that the owner had put blood, sweat, and tears into and wanted to reopen it to the community. Am I right on that? Yes, you have an incredible memory. Yeah. And, and we wanted to do the story of that theater owner's desire to try to keep the business open. Oh. Yeah. And Tom, it wasn't just his ability, but it was his passion and his drive that we knew was going to bring him places. He ended up going to CNN, SI, and then, of course, had an incredible run at ESPN. We're talking 16 sports Emmys, seven Murrow Awards, and it was only in the last month that Tom left ESPN and is now with Fox and just last weekend was on the, the frozen tundra of Lambeau doing some interviews after that game. But Tom, it, it's so great to see you and to talk to you. And just tell us a little bit about being on the field after a game and, and talking to athletes. I mean, you know, that you're very good at it. Don't get me wrong, but it, you do something in the storytelling front. As I looked up some of the quotes from some of the people when you were leaving ESPN. Tom Rinaldi just stomps around the planet playing with people's heartstrings and making you cry your guts out. Another one was death taxes and Tom Rinaldi making you emotional on game day on Saturday morning. Let me interrupt, Kelly. Yeah. I'm not on any platforms of social media. And yet, one of the great tweets that anyone ever sent me that 
in, in any way involve me again because I'm not on social media or any platform. I don't get to see these things. But years ago, somebody sent the following tweet to me: "The two people you never want to see in your town: Jim Cantori <laughs> and Tom Rinaldi." <laughs> If folks don't know, that's Jim Cantori of the Weather Channel, who you always see in the worst weather events there are. And then, of course, me, because too often I'm associated with telling these stories of of loss or of sentiment or, as was Kelly just suggested earlier, stomping around the planet to try to manipulate people's heartstrings. Hopefully we're not trying to do that too much, but that's been a little bit of the M.O. But they're the stories that stick with you. They're the stories that, I mean, you don't know, Tom, how many times I pulled my kids around the TV and said, you're going to watch this story. And it was, you know, it was you about the hospital in Iowa overlooking the stadium, or it was, I remember on 9-11 one year saying, we're going to watch the man in the red bandana, which you, I believe, I didn't know this until recently, but you had actually written that as a book. Is that correct? Yes, after the feature. And for those who don't know it, It's a story about a young athlete who competed at Boston College. Kelly's familiar with the story. He was a lacrosse player. And after his time at BC, he got a job on the 104th floor of the South Tower working for an investment bank. And when the second plane hit Flight 175 out of Boston and rocked the tower, he made his way down the only functional stairwell left. He made his way to the sky lobby high in the 70s of the Trade Center Tower. And it's a scene which was indescribable really in its loss and in its carnage. There were scores of people who had been killed. There were many people who were in the process of dying. And through this smoke where fire was spitting out from the open elevator shafts, He led a group into the stairwell, including carrying one woman across his back down to the 61st floor where the air was clear. He put that woman down and he implored the rest of the group to continue down. And he went back up to the 77th floor sky lobby. He then got a second group, led them down. He ultimately made his way down to the lobby and still did not leave. He had been a volunteer firefighter in addition to being an athlete. His dad had been a volunteer firefighter in Nyack, New York. And feeling as though he might be the only person from the highest, most reaches of the tower with any firefighting experience, he went to the command center of the FDNY, which had been set up to try to fight what was happening above them. The reason we know this, Kelly, as you know, is because he perished when the tower collapsed and his remains were found, the only civilian among 12 FDNY who were found in this same area where the command center had been. And we had the chance to tell that story on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And for whatever reason, when you put a story out in the world, Kelly, you really don't know if it will land what will gain traction with people, what will touch them or move them or lodge somewhere in their memories or in their hearts. And this story has. It ultimately became a book. We've been very grateful. It, you know, it made the Times bestseller list. It's found a home in schools where 
it's taught in high schools and sometimes as the freshman read for incoming classes in college as a narrative of 9-11 understood through the, the lens of one life lost and of several of the lives that he saved. And Tom, you tell it so well. And then the, the piece that came back to was the interviews with the people who were in those groups he led down and the all of them pointing to the red bandana, right? Which right, went back right. to his days at Boston College. And, right, uh, and in that his dad had given him this red bandana when he was a child. And for some reason, it became his talisman. You know, no one understands yeah. what sticks with a child. And he wore that red bandana around as we do now in the COVID era. He wore it as a mask to guard himself against the, the noxious fumes and smoke that had packed that sky lobby. And the survivors never knew his name, but they identified him as the man with the red bandana. The only man, by the way, when President Obama gave his speech at the opening of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, the one person whose name he invoked was Wells Crowther, the man in the red bandana. Wow. And we were grateful to know that he had known some parts of it because he had seen our story. And you should know too, Tom, that you know your story was sent around. My son attends a Jesuit high school and Jesuits uh, treat yeah. Wells as one of their own because he went to Boston College. Exactly. So this is a story which has made the rounds and lands with everyone who has a chance to see it, Tom. So. And obviously, the, you know, the, the Jesuit credo of four others and trying to yeah. live your life in service of others. And this is one of the things I, I think that Boston College has understood that this is a young alumnus. And he came to us. We educated him. He left our grounds. And when he faced the ultimate decision of what he would do, he gave his life for others. And I think it, in that sense, it is a, a deeply, deeply powerful story of sacrifice and of selflessness. No, it is. It's the personification of being a man for others. There's no doubt about it. Tom, you tell it so well. I mean, this is awesome to have story time with Tom Rinaldi. But I mean, some of the other ones too, Tom, just... Let's talk about stories, Tom, and what makes up a good story in your mind? Because I'll tell you, I've seen other reporters try, and some of them, you know, think that if they slow down their cadence and add music, they have a story. And that's not true. There are certain elements to a story, and you know it better than anyone else. Tell me what in your mind goes into a good story. You know, Kelly, I've said this before, and I, I use at times a visual to try to explain it. The difference between, and again, you, you, you invoked this at the beginning of our time together, about stories having a really effective purpose. I mean, a great efficacy in almost any line, any pursuit, not simply journalism, at your own dining room table, with clients, in presentations, in trying to build relationships and culture. Story is a foundation for that. Here's the, the visual I suggest. A report, which we all have to traffic in or, and are important, is a line. It goes from one point to the other point, and it dispenses knowledge along the way. A story is a wave. It doesn't proceed on the straight linear track of a line. For it to be a story, Kelly, it has to dip and has to rise and maybe not at the times or in the ways or with the heights or the depths 
that you expect. But if you can envision a wave, that's what carries you and gives you momentum from wanting to take that journey from origin to finish, or at least the finish for now. I think that's one of the things I'd say. Another thing, Kelly, is it took me way too long in my career to recognize, and I blew so many interviews and didn't honor the, the stories as well as they could have been told way too often. But it took me a long time to recognize the three themes that, at least for me, are most powerful in a story. One is the line between living and dying. Nothing competes with it. It's in its own category. Whenever a story can contain that theme, by definition, it's compelling. Number two, and this speaks to the venue I work in, is greatness. It's pursuit. It's cost, it's persistence, it's challenge, it's surprises, all of it, the pursuit of greatness. And three is I think the most human theme, which is unique to us as a species on earth, and it's forgiveness. Nothing is more human, more challenging, and more universal, Kelly, for each of us than the dilemma of forgiveness, the challenge of it. Because all of us get hurt. All of us are, are, are wrong. We also hurt others. We also wrong others. And we need to be forgiven. Are we capable of receiving it? Are we capable of granting it? Do we know what it's like to be unforgiven? The weight of that, as well as the grace of feeling as though I have been forgiven for this mistake I've made. So to me, those are the three most powerful themes. And listen, many of the stories I do don't contain them, but I, I look for those themes in the stories that we try to tell. God, you state that so well, Tom, you really do. And it's, you know, it's not just the lines of work where this stuff is powerful, but when you think about our history, when you think about Native Americans around the fire or an Irish family around the turf fire in their little home or in any part of the world, pre a hundred years ago, there was nothing but stories to tell. That's all you had, right? And, and it's how we make sense of the world from its beginning to now, to what we hope is its enduring and better future. The other thing I'd say, Kelly, is the 10,000 hour rule, which Malcolm Gladwell, I think popularized and, and really put in the bloodstream of our culture, makes a great deal of sense when it comes to mastery. But what is the one enduring, stark exception to that? It's a story. You can hear it one time and it lands in you. It lodges in you. You feel compelled to pass it on, share it, shape it, see what it means to the other person. Did it mean that to you? This is what it meant to me. Just like one of the things I've often said when I've spoken in classes, Kelly, is I'll often ask this question, have you seen The Wizard of Oz? And just about everybody has. And then I'll ask, what's the theme of The Wizard of Oz? And it's amazing to hear the number of answers, the different answers to what the theme is, right? So perhaps the most facile or obvious answer would be, well, there's no place like home. But then there's someone else who will say, you know, don't trust authority. 
or question authority. <laughs> or, there, or, or then a great, a great answer like, we already have what we need. Right, that what does the scarecrow discover and the tin man discover and the lions that they actually already possess these things that they think they're lacking. Yeah. You know, and, and again, and on and on about the themes of the Wizard of Oz. And one of the reasons it's so enduring and such a apt masterpiece is because it operates on these different frequencies. I was thinking about this when I was reflecting on all the racial strife in our country and I was talking to my boys about it. And one of the seminal stories of my childhood that landed and never left was Brian's song. And yeah. for years, I thought it was because of the fragility of life and the understanding that even great athletes can be struck down with no explanation. But as I reflected on it with the kids this summer, it was also because it was my first way of knowing that a black man and a white man could not only be friends, but love each other. It was the first time I ever saw that. It made it completely normal to me in terms of their friendship. So you're right, these stories land and it doesn't take 10,000 hours. Your life can be changed because of them in one hour. Before the, the NFC Conference Championship, Kelly, this is just the last story that we told. And, and I'll, I'll tell it to you right here. The Green Bay Packers have an outstanding running back named Aaron Jones. And the NFL has a campaign called My Cause, My Cleats, where for a game, players can wear whatever kind of cleat they want without respect to the league's uniform code. Aaron Jones opened up his cleat design to a contest. Submit your design and I will pick one. My cause is pediatric cancer research. I would like it to honor pediatric cancer research. Have at it. And a boy named Ethan Haley wins the contest. Jones picks his design. He surprises the boy, telling him, you're the winner. You're a boy who's loved art his whole life. He's 12 years old. You're the winner. And he ships a pair of the cleats made from the boy's design to the boy's house. So he has his own pair. Jones runs for the longest rush of his career, 77 yards for a touchdown against the Eagles, wearing the boy's cleats and comes into the post-game Zoom with the cleats dangling around his neck from the laces, holds them up because he knows that Ethan and his family will see the cleats. Two weeks after the game, Ethan Haley dies. He has cancer. Jones understood that, but perhaps not the gravity of where Ethan was on this journey. And so we tell this story about Aaron Jones and this contest and this boy who does this design, has this moment, and the family's gratitude toward this player for giving their boy this moment in the last month of his life. We interviewed Jones over Zoom three days before the biggest game of his life. And Jones is very emotional about the loss that he feels for a boy that he never met 
a boy that he only talked to through Zoom, a boy whose cleats he chose to wear. And in telling the story, one of the most wonderful things that we heard was from this incredible, incredibly strong mother, Kristen Haley, and Nate Haley, Ethan's dad. But Kristen reached out and said, in essence, thank you so much for sharing Ethan's story. You don't know how much it helped in our grief. And you could say, when you've suffered the greatest loss there is, why would the sharing of the story somehow lighten or help or put a hand out for someone walking through the toughest journey there is to the grief of losing a child. Here's the thing, we don't have to know why. The story serves its purpose to everyone who might hear it and care about it. Not everyone will care about it, of course, but to honor the trust of the family willing to share this incredibly difficult moment in their family's journey and to know, hey, it helped us. That's an awesome trust to try to honor. And I know we felt thrilled to hear that from the mom. Oh, I bet you did, Tom. That's, and Tom, where do you get your stories? Or, or is your reputation now such that you just get a constant barrage of emails and ideas and behind the scenes type nuggets that someone believes a Tom Rinaldi might turn into something much bigger than that? I think, Kelly, it's really from everywhere, but it starts with, you know, taking in content, reading. You know, I mean, I I read a lot of content. I try to, and yes, there are people who reach out, but it, it, you know, we saw this, this story basically in celebration of the run. And then we had found out that, that Ethan had passed and that led in this case, that was the origin of sharing this story on Fox. Tom, I don't want to take up too much of your time because you are you could tell stories all day long and we'd love to hear them. Let everyone know. Let us know. Where, where do you, obviously you're on Fox now, where, where will be the easiest place to find your work? Because at least, uh, although ESPN spread it around a little bit, you knew on college game day you were going to get a healthy dose of Tom Rinaldi. Where can we find you now? So I'm going to continue to contribute stories and that kind of content to all of Fox's jewel events that they have. We'll, we'll be telling features about the Daytona 500, for example, Kelly, coming up in mid-February. We'll contribute to the NFL on Fox pregame show, big noon kickoff in college football. We'll contribute stories for the World Cup with the globe as a stage for the men and the women. We'll be able to tell stories rooted in baseball's postseason and the World Series, which Fox has all of those. Final question for you, Tom. Give me that one or two things that you would do if you were a business owner who had to talk to his eight or 10 employees, or if you were a principal who has to sit down and kind of buoy the emotions of your teaching core, which are so disconnected from the way they used to be. Give me those, if you want to sit down and tell a story, give me the just those two or three framework issues you try to work on? Number one is to listen. It sounds so obvious, but I remember early in my career, Kelly, over and over, I was more concerned with what my next question was than listening to the present answer. 
And it sounds so obvious, yet we don't always do it. We ask the question, but are we earnestly listening to what that answer may be? Number one. Number two, how do you ask a question? How much thought have you put into how you're posing this question? For example, almost any question, there are some examples, I mean, there are some exceptions, but almost any question, Kelly, I know you know this, is better posed open-ended rather than closed. Don't create a yes, no off-ramp. Ask in an open-ended way. And if you're wondering what that means, go back to first grade, guys. What, when, where, why, how, which, those create open-ended questions as opposed to starting with a verb, which is closed. Now, again, will you marry me? Are you pregnant? There are some important <laughs> questions that, that should start with, with a verb and be closed. There are important ones. And, and the last thing I'd say is I, I'd go back to an, an NFL team that did this exercise because they worried about team bonding this year when they couldn't all be together. And they were astounded at how this worked. Three H's. They asked people at different times, at the start or conclusion of different meetings, to share three H's a hero, a heartbreak, and a hope. Who's been a hero? What's been a heartbreak? What's a hope that you have? Again, there are many, many ways to, to do something like that, but. When you ask a question like that, especially let's just say, what's been a heartbreak? I mean, that is a, you're asking a lot, but you get a lot if you're willing to listen. You get past the surface, don't you? You do. And that's why I think, you know, as, as a very common question to go back to the wave or to end with it, Kelly, three questions that are almost always useful in any interaction where you were trying to have somebody share their story with you in sales, in medicine, in law, in journalism, in sport, in any vein, what was the low point? What was the turning point? What happened next? Which those three questions are the definition of the wave, don't they? They define, they, that tells you how high it's going to go, Tom. Those are fantastic. What a clinic you have put on for us, Tom Rinaldi. And we can't thank you enough. And we're personally, I'm just so happy for your success. I'm so happy to watch you, to hear you, to know that we shared 18 months together, whatever it was, on your climb up of the ladder, which has gotten you to the pinnacle of storytelling, not of media, not of sports media, but of storytelling, which to me is even more valuable. And you articulate your mission so very well. Thank you, my friend. And please reach out if you're ever in Northern California in the near future, would you? Kelly, just to indulge me to, to say this, your kindness and authenticity from my beginning at Sacramento, and I was there a very short time to when I left, the impression that you cast on me through those two things, not just competence and you know the profile that you carry in that city and in that region, but those two things, your kindness and your authenticity, were such great examples to me that they weren't just gifts I received, but they had a challenge in them and they had a way forward in them 
to say, remember this, equal this, try to live by this. And I, I really mean that. I mean, it's proof that we don't talk often. And as soon as you reached out, I wanted to do it because yeah. you were so kind and so generous with me. And I'm grateful to you for that. And I always will be. I appreciate that, Tom. I'll tell you, a lot of people come through in the world of media and there's some you think, oh man, he or she might really do something. Tom Rinaldi was a slam dunk, really was. It was easy to say, God, Tom, keep going, man. Keep pushing. Forget Blue Canyon. <laughs> it's snowing. Drive carefully. That's right. Tom Rinaldi, can't thank you enough, my friend. All good things to you and your family. Thank you, Kelly. Stay safe and to everyone out there. God bless. This Buy Sci-Fi podcast brought to you by CapTrust Sacramento. Genevieve's Burford and Brothers is now CapTrust Sacramento. Our mission is to enrich the lives of our clients, colleagues, and communities through sound financial advice, integrity, and a commitment to service beyond expectation. Cap Trust, Sacramento. If you liked what we served up today, please give us your rating, subscribe, and by all means, share. Music for the show, produced locally by Kitty O'Neill and her band, Skylar's Pool. The discussions and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker and are subject to change without notice. This podcast is intended to be informational only. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation, investment advice, or a recommendation to invest in any securities. CapTrust Financial Advisors is an investment advisor registered under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. CapTrust does not render legal advice.